This is the Nietzsche Podcast. Hello, hello. Welcome everyone to our book club. And today we're going to begin with the birth of tragedy. And uh, what we're going to do is we're going to start uh, today with an episode where we just look at the uh, preface, uh, both the prefaces. Well, the first preface uh, in the actual order of the text, if you have a copy of the book, is the 1886 preface, which Nietzsche entitles An Attempt at Self-Criticism. And so we're going to read that first, and then we'll take a little look at the very short original preface to the book, which is um, the one addressed to Richard Wagner. But the book is called The Birth of Tragedy, or Hellenism and Pessimism. And it should be noted that um, that's not the original subtitle. The original subtitle was Out of the Spirit of Music. And so the full title in the original printing would have been The Birth of Tragedy Out of the Spirit of Music. And what does that mean? Well, We've discussed this somewhat on the podcast in the past, but um, Nietzsche, and he, he discusses this in the text, as we'll see when we get into it, as a philologist, classical philologist, he knew that tragedy as an art form, historically speaking, anthropologically speaking, originates out of music. That the original um, form of tragedy, of what would later become the Greek tragedies, uh, dramatic tragedy, right? Performed as a drama on the stage. It was accompanied by a chorus uh, of voices. And Nietzsche, um, from the evidence that he has available, knows that originally the chorus was all there is. And that if you go even further back, and you can find sources for this in Aristotle or in... Um, I believe Plutarch, um, several other places, uh, many classical historians say that before the chorus, there was just the Dionysian dithyram, which was a sort of inspired, spontaneous, irregular sort of poetry that was a form of religious devotion to the god Dionysus. So that evolved into the Greek chorus, and then that eventually evolved into dramatic tragedy. And the Greek uh, drama, the lyric poetry of the Greeks, um, performed by all these characters who sort of play out a drama that, um, you know, uh, in which oftentimes in the case of tragedy involves some sort of fatal flaw for the main character or some sort of, uh, curse that is fated, that is known, um, sometimes before the character is even born, that they're going to die in some horrible way or be dismembered or be, they're destined for, um, great shame. Oedipus Rex is obviously a very um, impression example of sort of all of these things. Um, and so this was the, the, what would you say, the crowning artistic achievement of Hellenistic Greece was this art form. Tragedy was the highest expression of the Hellenistic Greek culture. And so uh, the birth of tragedy... How did tragedy emerge? Now, think about it from a philological angle, from a scholarly angle. That is the kind of question that someone studying classical antiquity might ask themselves. Um, in a, we might say, I mean, there's philosophy involved in everything to some extent, right? But we might say in a non-philosophical sense. 
you might not be attempting to come to some, to draw conclusions about the nature of, you know, hu human psychology as such, or insights into metaethics or metaphysics even, or anything like that. But as we see in the, um, both the first and the second preface that Nietzsche wrote, uh, he's interested in metaphysics as he's writing this book. Um, and there is an undercurrent of philosophical questions that are raised by this study. But we can simply see how Nietzsche may have been put onto this question by a philological or a classicist line of thinking. That, um, you know, you have this sort of um, prehistory of tragedy where you have various dramatic art forms that sort of become ever more complex and layered with meaning, religious meaning, moral meaning, uh, psychological meaning, and um, it culminates in tragedy. How does that emerge in society? What factors led to tragedy emerging, right? You could, that can be a very dry sort of anthropological, historical question that you could ask. But Nietzsche tells us very clearly in this introduction that in raising this question, a series, a cluster of questions, as he calls them, rose into his consciousness and dominated his thinking. And he produces this book, which is rather beyond the pale for as far as philologists were concerned. And just to talk briefly about it again uh, in my introduction to the work, Nietzsche explicitly uh, sort of dedicates this book to Richard Wagner and, and describes it as that he was thinking of the, that as he was writing the book, he says he was thinking of it as if he was engaged in a dialogue with Wagner himself, in that he's writing it imagining that he's sort of speaking to, to Wagner or engaged in a dialogue with Wagner. Uh, Nietzsche's Wagnerian allegiances were somewhat well known at the time, but publishing this really alienated a lot of his colleagues or led them to take Nietzsche less than seriously because it he didn't um, offer really any citations. Um, he says in the 1886 preface that he was rather disdainful of having to prove any of his claims <laughs> and that he was so self-assured of what he was saying that he really didn't feel the need to offer citations or evidence in the sort of rigorous style that the academics at the time were really of, of any time um, you know, certainly between then and now, nothing has changed. Um, you know, that a certain level of rigor was expected of Nietzsche. He didn't um, really provide that. It is a work that has a clear philological origin, but has one foot in philosophy the whole time. And it was this book that may have ended the upward trajectory of Nietzsche's career, at least as some sort of um, superstars, a rising stars, which you know, potential genius. That's how he was regarded because of how warmly his mentors spoke of him and his mentors happened to be, you know, men like Rischel, Jakob Burkhardt. Um, he had studied under Otto Jahn. I mean, just some of the most um, famous and influential men in the whole field. And so when they were saying, yeah, this, this young Nietzsche guy is a genius, he gets a professorship at the age of 24, and then in 1871, uh, I believe, or 1872, sorry, that's when he releases um, the first edition of Birth of Tragedy out of the spirit of music. 
And uh, it immediately is just, he's excoriated by the other scholars for producing shoddy, unrigorous work, for very obviously producing a work of Wagnerian, um, you know, it has like a Wagnerian philosophical agenda, you could say, that is underlying the whole thing. And so that is the situation surrounding the book, or that's the context surrounding the book. Now, he later changes the title to Hellenism and Pessimism. And as for why he makes this change, um, well, there's a couple things. And I think we get some clues in the attempt at self-criticism. So I guess um, to say it briefly, and then I think it will become clear um, as we move on, uh, Nietzsche really, in retrospect, looks at this first book and he finds all of the seeds of later ideas, as I've called them, uh, in it. He tells us, in his attempt at a self-criticism, all right, these are the things that I would criticize about my own work, but really important in this preface that we're going to read today, we're going to see how Nietzsche himself was able to retrospectively look at this work and see how all of these questions that he was raising at the time pointed him in the direction of something much deeper um, than just the academic concerns of a classical philologist. And so Hellenism and Pessimism becomes a later title, because the question of pessimism it becomes central. And Nietzsche sees pessimism as sort of hand-in-hand hand with tragedy as sort of the same question, right? If you had a very pessimistic culture or a culture that celebrates tragedy, that celebrates um, you know, all of the ugly and horrifying things that we see in Greek dramatic tragedy, what does that mean exactly? We should also say, um, you know, that this book was not a career ender for Nietzsche in terms of, um, you know, that some, some sort of claim that after he published this book, people stopped coming to his lectures and he was, uh, you know, just a complete outcast. It's not exactly true. His attendance of his lectures didn't change much over the years, but it actually was some of his lectures were more well attended than ever after publishing, uh, this book. And so um, we'll get into the text now. So we'll start with the attempt at self-criticism. So Nietzsche starts out, he says, quote, Whatever may be at the bottom of this questionable book, it must have been an exceptionally significant and fascinating question, and deeply personal at that. The time in which it was written, in spite of which it was written, bears witness to that, the exciting time of the Franco-Prussian War of 1870-71. Uh, end quote. So Nietzsche was uh, involved in that war, although he got um, contracted an illness on the front, and he was not uh, conscripted into a, uh, you know, a fighting, you know, front lines position. I believe he was a assistant nurse, um, but you know, he basically got sick and you know was sent home. Um, and so he talks about, we'll, we'll skip over a little bit of this first paragraph because it doesn't really have philosophical relevance, but basically um, he relates how the questions of this book were sort of rolling over in his mind when he was uh, under the walls of Metz uh, and while the peace treaty was being debated at Versailles, right? And he says, as that peace was debated, uh, the person who wrote the book, the young Nietzsche, to attain peace with himself. And, uh, quote, slowly convalescing from an illness contracted at the front, 
completed the final draft of the birth of tragedy of the spirit of music, end quote. And then he, he'll, he goes on here to sort of um, articulate the first of the questions that he wants to bring up, quote, out of music, music and tragedy, Greeks and the music of tragedy, Greeks and the art form of pessimism, the best turned out, most beautiful, and most envied types of humanity, humanity excuse me, to date, those most apt to seduce us to life, the Greeks. How now? They of all people should have needed tragedy? Uh, end quote. And so, uh, again, another thing that I have brought up, but there were interpretations of the Greeks up until that time and of Greek society and culture broadly uh, that Nietzsche would would have considered to simply be a projection of um, the philologists, the classical philologists, and the historians onto the Greeks, or that they we might say that was one of a number of bad habits that intellectuals and scholars at the time had in interpreting the ancient Greeks is that they would project their own views or their un own unconscious biases and prejudices and more especially the moral prejudices onto the Greeks and or they would attempt if not to project onto them to evaluate the Greeks according to the moral standards of their own time this led to as Hegel said it the Greeks being regarded as quote freaks of thought because when you do that kind of analysis, which doesn't really do the Greeks justice because you're not actually trying to understand them in the terms they understood themselves, what you end up with is sometimes nonsensical things or things that you just can't make sense of, right? So one of the things about the Greeks, and we can partially blame Goethe for this, um, and his, uh, it, it's sort of an inner chapter. It's uh, part three of Faust book two. Book two of Faust is, um, it's like a five act structure. And the middle act is called Helena. Helena is like a strange dream. Um, a lot of parts of part two of Faust is, are like a strange dream, but in Helena, um, Faust marries Helen of Troy and he has a child with her and he goes back in time to live with her in ancient Greece. And it's described as like an Arcadian, you know, rolling hills and fields, um, and, you know, there are vine embraced, uh, you know, uh, spires and ruins or not spires, but, you know, um, sort of like Acropolises and, uh, things like that in the distance. And it's like a, it's romanticism as a way of projecting onto the Greeks. And this Goethe is not entirely responsible, but he just sort of offers us one image in the zeitgeist that certainly pushed along that zeitgeist that the image of Faust um, getting in touch with the ancient Greek culture and um, actually communing with it, going back to live within the um, cultural milieu of ancient Greece, the way that it's portrayed in Goethe's play is as this idyllic, natural, um, simplistic, and it's serene and cheerful. Uh, you know, others who had uh, sort of put forward this idea, we might look to the sort of neo-pagan romantics People like um, Keats, uh, the Shelleys, um, to some extent Byron. Um, you can look at a lot of these figures who were 
actually out there pouring out libations to Dionysus and um, explicitly saw the Greeks as a pre-Christian people who importantly were cheerful because they had not yet been stained by things like Christian guilt. That um, it was a purer time, a time of innocence, um, purer conscious or, or purer, purer or cleaner consciences, and a sort of uh, more natural way of life where you, inner and outer could be unified. I mean, a Freudian could have a field day with, with this, right? I mean, it's it's basically the Freudian ideal of civilization. And so we may notice something about all this, right? That we'd basically or the European intelligentsia at the time in the early 1800s during the Romantic period, this is all very well known, were projecting onto the Greeks because this was a well-known pre-Christian civilization, which nevertheless produced all this artistic beauty and, you know, had architecture and math and science. So it's like they weren't um, barbarians, right? It's not like they're looking at you know, you're not looking at the Mongols or some, or you know, um, some other like steppe tribe uh, who are like nomadic and don't have all these edifices of culture, um, except when they were like ru- ruling and running other civilizations, right? You're looking at the Greeks. These people, um, you know, created all these wonderful works of art and sculpture and poetry and so on and so forth. And so it's not the scary barbaric pre-civilizational mode, right? But it is pre-Christian, and so. It's that Garden of Eden construction that gets um, uploaded onto the Greeks or, or that modifies our view of the Greeks. And that's how I would describe the way that the Romantics were looking at the Greeks. This is a pre-Christian era, so they don't know shame. They're innocent. It's before the um, man gains a knowledge of good and evil, right? And so they're just living in this idyllic simplicity. And so it's naturally cheerful. Now, to a... Some Nietzscheans might hear that and say, well, what's wrong with this view? And we'll see what's wrong with that view uh, in Nietzsche's um, assessment as we continue. But uh, there is a sort of similarity or there's like a Venn diagram there where Nietzsche is almost a pseudo-romantic in some ways. Or you can say that there are similarities between romantic thought and that of Nietzsche. Even though, again, another thing we'll see in this preface as we continue is the explicit rejection of romanticism. And um, But Nietzsche, the important thing is, Nietzsche ultimately does wish to combat this view of the Greeks as being like sort of like naive children um, living in... Like, not literal children, but you know what I mean? Like a sort of a uh, a race at the birth of uh, time uh, before this, like, stain was placed on humanity, living in natural simplicity. Um, and it's not like, um, what is it that Hobbes says? Like, no one, um, no one desires the freedom, the desolate freedom of the wild ass, right? Um, which is Hobbes' way of saying that when people say they want freedom really what they want is um, power over their lives and the lives of others. Um, they don't want, uh, you know, freedom in the sense that, you know, Rousseau would have claimed that we want freedom the way that the noble savage has it, right? Rousseau is another famous romantic figure. And so the question of tragedy now, to consider that, we, we see now why it becomes an interesting question because Nietzsche is looking at sort of this view of the Greeks as this, 
people of natural simplicity who lived in idyllic cheerfulness. And he's saying, well, hold on a minute. What about Oedipus Rex? What about these stories that they told and dramatized and which seemed to have hearkening back to ancient times as we go earlier and earlier, some sort of religious origin and significance to this like artistic performance that evolve into these portrayals of people who are fated to be killed, overthrown, mutilated, shamed, destroyed. Um, you know, total, um, you know, just terrible and terrifying. How does that fit with a culture that is living in this primal simplicity? Another good image. If you've seen Fantasia, the original Fantasia, I know there have been other ones. I'm talking about the OG Fantasia. Have you all y'all seen that? Um, there is one of the, I'm sure you can watch this for free probably. And I, I haven't seen this in years. I'm just remembering it from when I was a kid. Um, probably because I think there were breasts in it, like naked breasts. <laughs> but um, and it was like, ooh, wow. But, um, you know, like when you're a kid. But um, it's like these um, frolicking centaurs and satyrs out in this, you know, um, like natural landscape, right? That's, I think, a, a distillation of the romantic image of the Greeks. And so how does that fit with portraying these tragic things? And so um, Nietzsche says, quote, you will guess where the big question mark concerning the value of existence had thus been raised. Is pessimism necessarily a sign of decline, decay, degeneration, weary and weak instincts, as it once was in India and now is, to all appearances, among us, modern men and Europeans? Is there a pessimism of strength, an intellectual predilection for the hard, gruesome, evil, problematic aspect of existence, prompted by well-being, by overflowing health, by the fullness of existence, is it perhaps possible to suffer precisely from over-fullness? Uh, end quote. We'll end quote right there. Okay, so interesting things here. So Nietzsche says pessimism, by the way he frames the question, right, is pessimism necessarily a sign of decline and necessarily is emphasized. Meaning Nietzsche is saying there are plenty of examples where pessimism is a sign of decline and he points to two of them. One is in India, the other is to modern men and Europeans. So post-enlightenment Europe, pessimism. Nietzsche is saying, at least as a rule or ordinarily to him, it looks as if the modern form of pessimism that we see around us is a sign of decline, decay, degeneration, weary and weak instincts. And when he talks about pessimism in India, really, I mean, he's talking about the the uh, cultural context in which Buddhism emerges, um, but even prior to Buddhism, which is a world-rejecting religion and um, a, what would you say, Nietzsche would say, a life-denying religion, albeit one which is a thousand times more logical than Christianity because it addresses itself to suffering directly and does not layer on this moral reality of sinfulness on top of it. So that's a very interesting thing, just uh, by the way, as an aside, doesn't really relate to what we're talking about more broadly. If you want the quickest explanation of what the similarities and differences between Christianity and Buddhism are for Nietzsche, all the specifics, cultural specifics aside, 
Christianity and Buddhism are both no-saying religions. They are both world-denying religions, life-denying religions. So he rejects both on that basis. But morality, right? Huge problem for Nietzsche. Um, morality spoken of here as universalist terms, deontological, duty-based morality, unconditional morality. Um, that also to Nietzsche is anti-life. And because Buddhism doesn't have that element and is essentially in the Buddhist view, a sort of what you, you might say metaphysical utilitarianism uh, that just directly sees suffering as the evil and the re relief thereof as the good and everything else is pragmatic towards those ends, even the epistemology of Buddhism to some extent, although not entirely. Um, uh, you know, it, it, therefore, Buddhism is a little bit more logical and a little bit less anti-life than Christianity. And so he occasionally will give it credit on that basis. Nevertheless, in India, when Buddhism emerges, and even prior to that, uh, you have um, the general denial that there is actually... Um, you know, any value to be gained by chasing the, you know, worldly success or um, ambition or accomplishment in this life. Um, and whether or not that's actually true in India or not, the reason why Nietzsche is saying this is because he has read a great deal of Arthur Schopenhauer. And this is largely um, how Schopenhauer would regard um, Indian society and culture based on his re reading of the Upanishads and the Bhagavad Gita and um, his own, you know, Schopenhauer is a philosophical pessimist. And that's how he, Nietzsche, when he says the pessimism of India, you can sort of imagine Schopenhauer standing in there. And um, so then Nietzsche asks, so is that necessarily true that pessimism is the sign of decline and decay and weakness, which he says our modern pessimism, we might look to the sort of the tongue-in-cheek nihilistic cynicism and cynical sense of humor that is all pervasive now um, and pessimism just as a means of uh, justifying one's own inaction, right? You can understand it psychologically on that level. Pessimism can be a coping mechanism to explain to yourself or rationalize to yourself why doing nothing is um, actually the appropriate thing to do because why would it, why would you need to why struggle anyway? You're just going to lose, right? And so Nietzsche asks, is there a pessimism of strength? An intellectual predilection for the hard, gruesome, evil, problematic aspect of existence. So a not a rationalization, but an instinct, a drive toward um, all of these. I mean, it's he's speaking in very vague and over general terms here, but we can get it really easily. Um, he says, prompted by well-being, by overflowing health, by the fullness of existence. So someone is so healthy, so well-adjusted that they could um, endure, or what, like that might be a word counter to Nietzsche's taste, but we'll say um, that they therefore would have a taste for that which is hard and evil and terrifying and terrible. And so with what we've already established in the background of this book, I think what Nietzsche is driving at should be um, uh, very easy to see here so far. And 
he's simply raising questions, but he's doing a very good job of doing it in a way that sort of lead us along around his train of thought, right? Um, okay, so he elaborates a little more on this point, but um, next relevant section, he says, quote, what is the significance of the tragic myth among the Greeks of the best, the strongest, the most courageous period? and the tremendous phenomenon of the Dionysian, and born from it tragedy. What might they signify? End quote. So he raises the um, example of tragedy, um, just as we've been talking about, and here we see um, him state sort of matter-of-factly how um, tragedy is born from the Dionysian, and that this is, again, as we've said, a sort of anthropological historical truth that the Dionysian dithyram, which is a, you know, poetry recited spontaneously while someone in the ritual is uh, drunk on wine. Archilochus says, uh, quote, I know how to lead up the fair song of Lord Dionysus, my wits thunderstruck with wine, end quote, sort of implying the proper way to um, lead off the the song of Lord Dionysus is with your wits thunderstruck with wine. And so from these dithyrambic poems, these improvised poems, we get proceed to the chorus and then the Greek tragedy. And then Nietzsche says, quote, and again, that of which tragedy died, the Socratism of morality, the dialectics, frugality, and cheerfulness of the theoretical man. How now might not this very Socratism be a sign of decline, of weariness, of infection, of the anarchical dissolution of the instincts. And the Greek cheerfulness of the later Greeks, merely the afterglow of the sunset. The Epicureans resolve against pessimism, a mere precaution of the afflicted. And science itself, our science, indeed, what is the significance of all science viewed as a symptom of life? End quote. Um, so, what we see correlated in this passage is Socratism with a couple other words, the theoretical and optimism. And notice here, we can see very easily what happens if you invert the formula that we just used above, that there could be a pessimism of strength where one who is overfull with life and health for whatever that might mean, as Nietzsche has not really designated that in this text so far, but um, basically somebody might have a taste or an instinct for that which is hard and terrible and terrifying. Conversely, we might say that optimism could flow from someone who is weary or weak or degenerating. And so, okay, first thing, obvious uh, criticism we could make of this attempt at a self-criticism is you might say, well, Nietzsche just said that pessimism comes from weariness and weakness. And here he just said optimism comes from weariness and weakness too. For Nietzsche, any label that you use for, I mean, really almost anything, you could do this sort of dichotomous analysis of it and say, okay, is this coming from a place of strength or a place of weakness? Is this a strong will or a weak will willingness? And that, that is really the operative question. And that whether you are full of life or not is not something we can actually judge by whether you're an optimist or a pessimist, for example, 
right? Whether you consciously identify as that. That is not how we judge whether you are full of life because either one of those things could manifest in a, we might say, in a weak way or a strong way. Um, as a, a rationalization would be the weak manifestation, right? Now, it's sort of an open question whether there's an optimism of strength possible. I will say that because I don't think I've ever heard Nietzsche talk about it. Although I think Nietzsche's own philosophy, especially later in his life, could be classed as that. I mean, what else is is the trusting fatalism of Goethe other than optimism, right? But Nietzsche would say no. Uh, you know, it's like if you really truly trust in fate, you should you would be aware of the ways in which you're going to face tragedy. And he always prefers to view his own worldview in terms often invoking things like calling it, christening it the tragic worldview or a Dionysian worldview. And so Nietzsche doesn't ever want to take our focus off of the hard, gruesome, evil, terrible aspects of existence that he references at the beginning of this. He thinks um, sort of, I think, having inherited this disposition from Schopenhauer, he thinks that that's really key for honesty, is that you have to if we're going to have a philosophy, a worldly philosophy, which Nietzsche's philosophy is, we have to be very hard-nosed, hard-boiled, honest about what the character of the world and of life really is. Don't, uh, you know, muffle, sweeten, falsify the truth. So, in any case, um, the tendency in a sort of weak manifestation of optimism or pessimism even is that rationalizing. And so we see then the link between the theoretic and the optimistic view. And we'll elaborate on this more as we go, but remember that that link is there. These sort of unify in Socratism. The short version, again, as I'm trying to give a lot of short versions of these ideas in the beginning as we go, and they'll be elaborated as we continue, but I think it'll help you like latch onto these ideas as you see them throughout the text, is that Socratism is actually has a faith that mankind can be improved, that society can be improved. Like Plato is a utopian. Plato believes um, we, we can create the ideal republic and that if you structure society in the proper way, that um, you know, things will be at harmony. Uh, and um, that is an optimistic view, and it's theoretic at the same time, right? And it's uh, not only that, it's a moralistic view inherently. And so these are all sort of aspects of Socratism, moralistic, theoretic, optimistic, and we see how there's a link between all of these sort of ideas of the ought, right? What ought to be. It's theoretical because it's not real, right? The ought. It's moral because obviously ought is moral language. It's prescriptive, not descriptive. And uh, it's optimistic if you if you actually pursue an ought because you are uh, you believe your ideal actually could be realized. That there is not some sort of tragic limitation that will stop it from being realized. And I love the imagery here um, of the afterglow of the sunset. So he references the Greek cheerfulness. For one, he hints, this is an aspect of the later Greeks. And so 
it wouldn't actually obtain during the period of Hellenic Greece, which is the period that Nietzsche is interested in. And later he will make that distinction even more clear. But more than that, um, you know, so not only is this sort of supposed cheerfulness not found at the beginning of the Greek culture, it's not a pre-civilizational sort of natural cheerful state. This is what we find when the Greeks are declining as a civilization. That's when we find these sort of easy optimism, naive cheerfulness, right? That so many people have projected onto them. He's saying, well, they did find something like that, but that was a symptom of their decline. Um, it's, uh, you know, it's sort of the illusion of, you know, telling, telling a story to the sick and dying man of like, oh yeah, you're going to be okay. And then we're going to go to your favorite restaurant tomorrow and all that, that Nietzsche's saying, that's what optimism is. Um, and so what does he say to continue? He says, is the resolve to be so scientific about everything, perhaps a kind of fear of an escape from pessimism, a subtle last resort against truth. And morally speaking, a sort of cowardice and falseness, amorally speaking, a ruse. O Socrates, Socrates, was that perhaps your secret? O enigmatic ironist, was that perhaps your irony? End quote. So there's, there's much you could make out of that line about Socrates. Um, and so what is he saying about him? Well, he says, was this a ruse? Was it a cowardice and falseness? This Socratism, which we as we've said, has all these aspects, optimism, theoretical, moralism. And because, so morality, Nietzsche says this much later in his career in like Twilight of Idols, that morality is necessarily passes a judgment on what is. It condemns what by necessity actually exists and promotes in favor of that some idealized state which does not actually exist. Going back to the first episode of the podcast, this is Nietzsche's eternal struggle against idealistic thinking. Not, I'm not using idealistic in a philosophical sense here. I, idealistic in the um, colloquial sense, right? Um, and that, that it is literally you're condemning reality. You're not respecting necessity. That, um, you know, you, I know you can imagine that things could be different in all sorts of different ways, but in fact, there's only one actual reality and it's right in front of you. Um, and so Socrates, what is his great irony then? Well, Socrates is all about the truth. He's all about reason, really, is what he's about. Um, it's not that Socrates claims to be in possession of some sort of unvarnished truth. Quite the opposite. He says he's the, the man who knows um, he's most aware of his own ignorance, but he, by having this principle of reason, which Socrates believes to be binding upon all minds and following it studiously, Socrates wishes to avoid as much falsehood as he can. And yet Nietzsche's alleging was Socratism a sort of ruse because he's saying, you know, what, is it a sort of cowardice and falseness? Is it our way of sugarcoating the truth? This sort of Socratic optimism. And so what Nietzsche's hinting at here, 
we could see the very basic level that that is could be Socrates's irony, that he was untruthful or not entirely truthful in his attempt to make the, um, you know, the truth the highest value, right? But that's a little bit low hanging fruit. I think really we need to consider how unartistic Socrates is and the fact that Nietzsche thinks of art as fundamentally deceptive or concealing the truth. This is the main difference between art and philosophy. And if Socrates is sort of painting over the world with this sort of false sheen or coat of paint or syrup upon the world, sweetening things, falsifying things, if he's committing this ruse, crafting this illusion, Socrates is a sort of artist. And um, so this will become, so that would be the great irony that the anti-artistic Socrates that ultimately that very position itself is best described as Socrates's aesthetic. So very interesting. So then we get to section two of this preface and um, very important uh, beginning to this section when Nietzsche says, quote, what I then got hold of something frightful and dangerous, a problem with horns, but not necessarily a bull. In any case, a new problem today, I should say that it was the problem of science itself. Science considered for the first time as problematic, as questionable, uh, end quote. So, uh, you know, a, pro a problem with horns, but not necessarily a bull. So it's a problem with horns because it's a dilemma. What does dilemma mean? It means literally two horns. It means you go one way, you're gored by one horn. You go by the other way, you're gored by the other horn, right? Do you want to gored by the left horn or by the right horn? And so... What is it with the problem of science? Well, science is considered for the first time as problematic and as questionable. Um, why is that a problem with horns? Well, to put it rather as straightforwardly as I can, in, in a way that Nietzsche will later elaborate, it's that same scientific will to truth that drives Nietzsche to encounter the problem of science to call into question the will to truth itself. This is terminology he's not quite using yet, but he makes it very clear in the book that the, the unconditional will to truth is the foundation of science. And it, the, again, another irony or sort of paradox is that if you take that to its logical and ultimate conclusions, you have to apply that will to truth to the will to truth itself and ask, as Nietzsche does at the beginning of Beyond Good and Evil, for example, why truth? Why do we seek truth? Why not falsehood? What if falsehood is um, more amenable to life? What if it's more life-promoting to live under illusion, to live under a sort of religious or cultural or moral enchantment? What if in every way that uh, makes us stronger, healthier, better? And the issue is, um, if you so if you take the scientific spirit, the will to truth, to its complete and total conclusions, if you totalize it as the Socrates wishes to do, you come to this place where you question the will to truth itself, as we just have, which sort of undermines it because there's not really a good answer to that question. I don't think 
um, other than just saying, getting gored by the other horn and saying, well, it's good because it's true. And I demand that I totally follow the will to truth. And I don't, even if falsehood is better for life, I still reject it. Ironically, that ends up be seeming like, from a pragmatic standpoint, a rather irrational claim. Right? And so either way, you end up in irrationality. And so this is the great dilemma in the problem of science. And Nietzsche s- sees that he first touched that problem here in this first book, by thinking about tragedy and the Socratic attack on tragedy as Nietzsche sees it. So um, Nietzsche says, uh, I'll sort of gloss over some stuff that, you know, he, it was an impossible book that he wrote. Um, He calls it an impossible book because he wrote it in his youth, but it was a task so uncongenial to youth. And I think he's simply saying that, you know, maybe this was the kind of thing that it was unusual to be thinking about in such depth at the age of 24 um, or, or a little bit older. Um, and that, you know, it, it's a book that so centers art and yet, um, you know, it, it, who is it really for? He says, maybe, maybe it's for other artists who have also have an analytic or retrospective way of looking at the artistic process which Nietzsche sort of implies is maybe his own type. He's an artistic person, but who has this analytic mind. I think that very much tracks. And he says, but, you know, you would have to look far and wide for such people um, because most artists are not very analytical about their own artistic process and what drives them to make art. For them, they're just like listening to their muse and it's fine, right? And a lot of philosophical people are very analytical and unartistic, right? Um, so, uh, and he says, this is very interesting quote, that it is a book full of psychological innovations and artists secrets with an artist's metaphysics in the background, a youthful work full of the intrepid mood of youth, the moodiness of youth, independent, defiantly self-reliant, even where it seems to bow before an authority and personal reverence in some, a first book also in every bad sense of that label end quote. Um, so, and he goes on to, to say right after that, the, the book is marked with every defect of youth it, with its length and excess and its storm und drang, storm and stress. And that, uh, that, that's a literary genre. That's a sort of period of, uh, Goethe's career. That's sort of, that's when he, Goethe's storm and stress novel, it's sort of a style. It's, uh, but his big, big one was uh, Sorrows of Young Werther. It was written while Goethe was also a young man. And so there's sort of a, there's a German association with one's, a young author's early and first books as, you know, the storm and stress period. That that's sort of a natural thing. It's the anxiety and existential angst of youth uh, that will come out in your writing. Um, and so that can produce masterworks like the sorrows of young Werther. Um, but also, you know, as Nietzsche says, it can produce excess. And, um, but I, I find very interesting. He says there is an artist's metaphysics in the background. So Nietzsche is not free of metaphysics when he writes this book far, far from it, right? He hasn't come to conceive of metaphysics in that way. He's still very much, he's barely approached philosophy, right? And so he's not 
he's not yet ready to start like knocking down categories and pillars of philosophical thought, right? It's still, um, he's still very uh, much within his milieu of influences. His thought is still very much marked off by the, sort of those boundaries. And uh, he elaborates on that more as we go on. But keep the artist's metaphysics in mind as we continue. Um, and so he, uh, after that, he speaks a little bit more about the uh, book's success. But at the end of this uh, section two, um, he says, um, quote, the task which this audacious book dared to tackle for the first time, to look at science in the perspective of the artist, but at art in that of life, end quote. And there's, there's something he said earlier about science as a symptom of life, right? Uh, the phrasing is a little um, awkward in Kaufman's translation. I guess I didn't mention, I'll put it in the show notes so everyone knows. I'm, I'm reading Walter Kaufman's translation. I mean, big surprise there. But um, he he's... A symptom of life, it's awkward phrasing because it makes it sound like life is a disease that like you, you science is a symptom of. That, that's not what he's saying. Um, and it's cl- a little clearer in other translations, actually, that he's saying he's simply emphasizing science as an effect and not a cause. Or as a, that's maybe an awkward way of putting it, as a manifestation, as something superficial, as something secondary, as something not primary or fundamental. It's a sign, it's a symptom, it's something outward, something uh, in the appearance. And he's looking, so looking at art here from the perspective of life, and he later talks about um, art in the same language as a symptom of life. Again, what he means to say here is that he intended in this book to look at a culture's artistic productions in the same way we were speaking of earlier, to examine what it says about their underlying level of vitality, healthfulness, whatever you want to call it. Um, How weary is this culture? How much drive do they have to continue on, to continue expanding, um, living, and so on? And so he's looking at art from that perspective of life, quote-unquote, life being Nietzsche's new sort of standard, for what is good or what is bad, what is life creating, what is life preserving, what is life expanding. That's how we're going to evaluate the artistic productions of a culture. And then to look at science in the perspective of the artist. And I think the best way to understand that is by linking that back to what we were talking about before with Socrates' irony, that Socrates himself is a kind of artist. And so to dare Nietzsche's daring in this first book with his artist's metaphysics, right? So implying beginning from a starting position, first principles, which are commensurate with the mind and the attitude of the artist to use that starting foundation to examine science. And so what is, what do you find naturally that the scientist is simply doing art? He's a type of artist and it, in spite of, in the same way Nietzsche says that sort of uh, uh, the Greek cheerfulness of the later Greeks was uh, life's weariness at life, right? It's life's weariness at life. It's life itself becoming weary and turning against life. 
um, you know, the anti-artistic Socratist, right? The person who inaugurates this this uh, universal binding principle of reason and the will to truth is nevertheless an, an artist. And so then in section three, uh, Nietzsche, he, he lays into his own book again to let us know so that you really get the picture. He says, quote, to say it once more, today I find it an impossible book. I consider it badly written, ponderous, embarrassing, image mad, and image confused, sentimental, and places saccharine to the point of effeminacy, uneven in tempo, without the will to logical cleanliness, very convinced and therefore disdainful of proof, mistrustful even of the propriety of proof, a book for initiates, music for those dedicated to music, those who are closely related to begin with on the basis of common and rare aesthetic experiences, music meant as a sign of recognition for those close relatives in artibus, uh, end quote. So he, it's Nietzsche loves his run on sentences. So I, I'm, you know, he starts in one place and ends in a completely different place here, but I don't think Nietzsche's not being very charitable with his own work. Perhaps that's can be that can be forgiven. We can look upon that itself rather charitably. It's very easy to be down on yourself and your own work, especially when it is manifestly flawed, as most people seem to agree that Birth of Tragedy is. But um, you know, it's I would say most modern scholarship is far more forgiving and charitable to Nietzsche than he is to himself. And I, I didn't read from any of it because I don't think it's really important that we do so. But in the translator's introduction, Kaufman sort of notes how the book has been like rejuvenated by recent scholarship. I mean, just as an example, um, what do we have here? Um, there's a, there's a good quote where he says, uh, oh, this is GF else. Um, Gerald F. Else. He says, uh, the Birth of Tragedy is a great book by whatever standard one cares to measure it. And he adds, The Birth of Tragedy has cast a spell on almost everybody who has dealt with the subject since 1871. So, I mean, that's high praise. G.F. Else wrote, he's a, also a classicist. In, um, I've quoted him before in the podcast um, because he's just a, a great academic resource. But not, and that's high praise from him. So you have to sort of... Uh, the reason why I'm taking the time to say this in the middle of breaking down the, the philosophical ideas in this introduction to the book, and we're barely on like page three, so I'm sorry, we're going at my usual slow pace where I'm dissecting everything. Maybe this uh, deep dive in a book is a bad idea. <laughs> I'm like reminding myself of Jordan Peterson, like starting his first biblical lecture. He doesn't even like really get <laughs> like past the first like page of the Bible. <laughs> Um, cause you can just go on and on. Um, but in any case, I, I think it is important because I have heard some, you know, people who are new to Nietzsche sort of express the opinion, well, isn't birth of tragedy, just a shitty book. Isn't it bad? Didn't Nietzsche himself say that book was bad, right? They'll even quote from this section to sort of prove like, look how bad it is. Even Nietzsche says it's bad. Uh, I would just say a lot of academics disagree and Nietzsche can be wrong <laughs> and he is wrong. It is a, a wonderful book and it's not as bad as he says it is. Um, although there's a bit of truth to, 
basically everything he says there, right? There's a grain of truth to it. Now, as he goes on, though, he says it's it's mistrustful of even the propriety of truth, as we mentioned. So he's very self-assured and uh, doesn't feel he needs to even prove his case. And he says it's a book for initiates, which has a very interesting connotation because it implies Nietzsche speaking to other cultists of Dionysus. If we just want to leap to a conclusion, that's that's what he's saying. Other people who have experienced similar things as him or, or who might lend the same credence to the metaphysical, um, the, the, the artist metaphysics, right, as he puts it. And so that places the book itself a little outside of even philosophy. And that's this is where I think the biggest problems with this book are, are with Nietzsche's contemporaries, is that it's not just that it was a lapse from classical philology into more, you know, philosophical concerns, but it, a, a lapse into Wagnerianism, which means a lapse into an artistic book and what could be more you know scandalous among scholars than someone saying like well you know that's an artistic decision that has nothing to do with the evidence right <laughs> whatever the case may be um and so but by calling and then by calling it a book for initiates he then touches something even like kind of deeper and scarier that maybe there's like a religious aspect to this book that he's being seized on by a god or a muse, as you know, Socrates warned the poets, and uh, that the poets and the the rap, rapsodes were seized by a god and a muse. And further down in the passage, he actually says, "Quote: uh, The effect of the book proved and proves that it has a knack for seeking out fellow rhapsodizers and for luring them on to new secret paths and dancing places." End quote. And so he specifically invokes the, the concept of the rhapsode, who was the dramatic performer of the lyric poetry. And so and that in ancient Greece is a place where art and religion intersect. And so Nietzsche is saying, this is a book that, however flawed it was, it's good for something insofar as it seeks out fellow people who have had that experience of perceiving that religious artistic link, perhaps we could say. There's also a little passage in between the two I just read that I feel I should read that he says, um, oh yeah, here, he uses it again. I'm sorry, I skipped right over this. He says, quote, it's an arrogant and rhapsodic book that sought to exclude right from the beginning the profanum vulgus of the educated, even more than the mass or the folk. End quote. And so that's very significant to me here, especially because this is being written by 1886 Nietzsche, who's telling us in no uncertain terms that his thinking back then, even more so than Nietzsche's aristocratic radicalism of not writing for the common person, not writing for the mass man, not writing for the Volk even, right? Um, not writing for the common or the general public or for the, the you know, the common man. But he says, um, the profane crowd, is what that means in Latin, is the educated. And I think that's because, again, as Nietzsche talks about scholars often, he sees these as sort of um, 
men with no, whose will to power is completely um, like, you know, that they've chosen a path of simply ascending through a series of, uh, you know, bureaucratic institutional uh, positions as if by rote, turning their, uh, you know, will to truth in a studious manner to one phenomena or the other, um, you know, to study, uh, you know, and he, he, he says like, normally their interests don't even lie in the thing that they're studying, their interest lies elsewhere, like in their family, they're, or making a career or making money or some, you know, their desires and vices or whatever. Um, you know, we don't need to rehash all of Nietzsche's criticisms of scholars, but in short, these are people without blood flowing through their veins in Nietzsche's view, right? Uh, these are the vulgar crowd, the, the unartistic scholars, um, you know, today, the people who don't, um, and the and un, un, irreligious, we might say, or people who are unable to understand that uh, primal, primordial link between religion and art and how philosophy, and yes, science, springs out of that in Nietzsche's view. So he's already touched upon a lot of really, um, we'll say, dynamite critiques of our ordinary views or the way that we conceive of the relationships between things like music and religion or science and art. There's an undertone of all of that uh, throughout this preface already. Um, and so Nietzsche says, quote, what found expression here was anyway uh, a strange voice, a disciple of a still unknown God. Uh, one who concealed himself for the time being under the scholar's hood, under the gravity and dialectical ill humor of the German, even under the bad manners of the Wagnerian, end quote. And so those are all things Nietzsche applies to himself, right? He And he's a, referenced the Rhapsode. He's about to explicitly name Dionysus, but he's saying this is a still unknown God. He didn't know. He is like a Rhapsode who was seized by the God Dionysus, whose name he did not know yet, and it was concealed under, you know, the full, beautiful expression of this Dionysian feeling that he's having at the time. In his retrospective analysis of himself, what Nietzsche's saying is, well, it was all concealed under kind of my flaws at the time. I was a Wagnerian, uh, you know, he says the dialectical ill humor, humor of the German. Nietzsche is German as much as he criticizes German philosophers. And German philosophy is dialectical post Hegel. Um, and you know, uh, this scholar concealed also under the scholar's hood. Nietzsche at the time is a scholar. And, uh, and so he says, quote, here was a spirit with strange, still nameless needs, a memory bursting with questions, experiences, concealed things after which the name of Dionysus was added as one more question mark, end quote. And so I think Nietzsche, we, we should really take a pause here and consider. So he's saying, I had all these cluster of questions about the nature of, you know, the tragic art form, how this relates to pessimism and how we have historically viewed the Greeks and projected our romantic sentiments onto them. And, you know, is perhaps the tragic feeling a symptom or a sign of a healthy over full soul is perhaps the optimistic feeling, the simply the afterglow, the decline, the, um, you know, the cheerful hopes of a man on his deathbed. Is that what Socratism comes out of? But he's saying a final question mark is added, or not a final question mark, but one more, perhaps more significant question mark, we'll say, of Dionysus is added onto, um, into, thrown into the bargain, as Nietzsche likes to say. 
And uh, he didn't really understand it at the time. And so I think Nietzsche, later Nietzsche is interpreting his own unconscious states and motivations that I think he's hinting to us are not really known. And, and this is clear in the way he speaks about this very poetically in the passage that follows, where he says, what spoke here, quote, was something like a mystical, almost magnetic soul that stammered with difficulty. Uh, a little further down, almost undecided whether it should communicate or conceal itself, end quote. You know, the, he says a magnetic soul. The maenads were the, they're these female servants of Dionysus or uh, Bacchus later in the Roman tradition. And uh, so, yeah, again, he's not sure if it, it I think you get, he's looking at something unconscious within himself that was uh, perhaps, you know, the strange, wicked, questionable questions, as Nietzsche likes to call them, that, um, I mean, we've all probably had that experience today where you have that thought where you question something, some dogma that in the common morality or the common civic religion, it's not okay to question it, right? And so maybe that's what he means that some of the questions he's having, he doesn't, he's not sure how to communicate them and he's not even sure if he should. Um, and he says, quote, what I had to say then, too bad that I did not dare say it as a poet. Perhaps I had the ability. And um, so we might actually be thankful that Nietzsche didn't express it as a poet. I, I, I'm a defender of Nietzsche's poetry, right? I'm an enjoyer of Nietzsche's poetry, um, in spite of the fact that it's very fashionable to bash on Nietzsche's poetry. But the very fact that it is fashionable to bash on Nietzsche's poetry shows you he's just was never destined to be universally popular because that, a man who writes as well as Nietzsche with his prose, you'd think he there wouldn't be so many detractors of his poetry, but it's it's very common to find. And so I think we can safely say that it is of second rank, just simply in terms of the grand scheme of things and the and the uh, critical opinion of, uh, you know, the people in general, I guess we'll say. Um, whereas, you know, if, if he had tried to express himself poetically, I'm simply saying uh, maybe the, the soil is not uh, sown for his later philosophy. Um, so he concludes this section here where he says, above all, the problem that there is a problem here and that the Greeks, as long as we lack an answer to the question, what is Dionysian, remain as totally uncomprehended and unimaginable as ever, end quote. Now, uh, Kaufman notes in his footnote here, uh, I'll just read from Kaufman's footnote, quote, the conception of the Dionysian in the birth of tragedy differs from Nietzsche's later conception of the Dionysian. He originally introduced the term to symbolize the tendencies that found expression in the festivals of Dionysus, he contrasted the Dionysian with the Apollinian, but in his later thought, the Dionysian stands for the creative employment of the passions and the affirmation of life in spite of suffering. Um, end quote. I would actually differ with Kaufman there, because I think really the Dionysian is more fundamental than that. It, what Kaufman's giving there is a description of a great man in the mind of later Nietzsche and he's he's really drawing on the fact where he calls Goethe a Dionysian in Twilight of Idols 
which is a very important passage for understanding what Nietzsche is talking about, what the possibilities of the Dionysian are, right? That it's no longer just wild revelry and self-forgetting, which is how the Dionysian is going to be discussed in this book. That the Dionysian really comes to stand uh, for, in Nietzsche's later thought, is life itself. And what is life? Life confided the secret to me. I am that which overcomes itself, right? Life overcomes life, life overcomes itself. The character of life is self-overcoming. Fancy way of saying, life is not being, it is becoming. There is no stable, permanent, enduring state of being a living being. Living beings are always changing and transforming and becoming something new. And in Nietzsche's view, the Dionysian is to recognize this and to live in such a way that life expands. Um, the other secret, of course, that life confides to Zarathustra in his parable about uh, speaking with this incarnation of life in one of the parts of, of Thus Spoke Zarathustra is that life says that it is nothing but will to power. Fundamentally, that's what it is. And so the Dionysian has a link with this concept of the life affirming, the life expanding, and what Nietzsche defines that as is living in accord with will to power. Now, in some sense, all things accord with will to power, since Nietzsche thinks it constitutes all possible action, maybe even all phenomena. And yet, uh, no, because will to power, in the same way that science, the will to truth, for example, could undermine itself, will to power could also undermine itself. And you can express power in ways that actually make you weaker, right? So are you expressing power in ways that open up new options, new avenues for new power and making yourself stronger? That is what later the Dionysians comes to signify. And it's confusing here because in this preface written by later Nietzsche, I think he conflates the two. That's my honest reading of this, is that I think he's... Now, there is a way of sussing this out, actually. I think what later Nietzsche would say is that young Nietzsche, even though he is writing a book in which the concept that he designates, Dionysian, refers to this specific thing, which is the ritual intoxication and dancing and self-forgetting in these Greek rituals, right? Which is very different from the more fully developed picture of the Dionysian, which is this sort of like based on these underlying principles of life that the that the pagans understood, that, but that we've lost and that... You know, it involved this idea of self-commanding and that Goethe, even somebody like Goethe can be a Dionysian, right? Or Napoleon or something like that. I think what Nietzsche would say is that even though he designates the Dionysian that way in this early text, he nevertheless encountered the Dionysian in that broad sense that he would understand later. He, he unconsciously or intuitively understood that from his reading of the Greeks. He saw this thing in the Greeks that he later gave the name Dionysian. And so that's really what this next part is about, uh, this next section of this preface. He says, quote, Indeed, what is Dionysian? This book contains an answer. One who knows is talking, the initiate and disciple of his God. End, end quote. Really quick interjection. Once again, Nietzsche brings in the language that he's, he's speaking of something for which he has knowledge that is divinely inspired, that is, or, or inspired by a muse, right? 
Um, but he goes on to say, quote, now I should perhaps speak more cautiously and less eloquently, but such a difficult psychological question as concerning the origin of tragedy among the Greeks, end quote. So Nietzsche is basically saying, I'm going to give you a more rigorous sort of argument for what I'm talking about now. Uh, and, you know, we should keep in mind, Nietzsche, this is his wheelhouse. He has a huge background in this. And so he can, and he says, let me speak seriously for a moment and a little less eloquently. We might say another, what his meaning is, like less flowery language. Let me, let's get down to brass tacks here. And uh, that's, that's what he does. He says, quote, the question of the Greeks' relation to pain, his degree of sensitivity, is basic. Did this relation remain constant, or did it change radically? The question is whether his ever stronger craving for beauty, for festivals, for pleasures, new cults, was rooted in some deficiency, privation, melancholy, pain. Supposing that this were true, and Pericles or Thucydides suggests as much in the great funeral oration, how should we then have to explain the origin of the opposite craving, which developed earlier in time, the craving for the ugly, the good severe will of the older Greeks to pessimism, to the tragic myth, to the image of everything underlying existence that is frightful, evil, a riddle, destructive, fatal? What then would be the origin of tragedy, perhaps joy, strength, overflowing health, over great fullness? And what then is the significance, physiologically speaking, of the madness out of which that tragic and comic art developed, the Dionysian magic, uh, Dionysian madness, excuse me, end quote. Maybe it is magic, who knows. Okay, so much of that should be clear given the comments I've already made as we've, we've come throughout. But notice, so he, he makes it very specific. He says, this is the, what we're asking here is whether pessimism directly uh, correlates to the Greek's relation to pain. Or another way of defining that, his degree of sensitivity. Did it remain constant or did it change radically? And so he, he classifies this tragic, the, the tragic myth as satisfying a craving for the ugly, the image of a craving for everything the image of everything that is frightful, evil, a riddle, destructive, and fatal, and implies that as the Greek sensitivity to pain increased, and he calls this physiological, again with Nietzsche, everything flows from the physiology, from the material, from the body, from the physical, um, what is rational, what is spirit, what is moral, all of these things, these are post hoc, they're second order, they're superficial, they're symptoms, they're signs, right? They're the effects, they're not the cause. And so he has the radical idea here that there is a physiological change in the Greeks' ability to endure pain or their sensitivity to pain, how much pain they can tolerate before they have to somehow muffle that pain or suppress that pain or have a sort of narcotic for that pain. And so art can be that narcotic, right? But art also can be, what he points out is this um, 
expression of this underlying joy and greatness and fullness that allows you to even seek out terrible things. Um, but I like that he makes it very specific. He gives us a dimension. He gives us a scale. Sensitivity. Um, that's a one way of understanding decadence or degeneration as he's talking about it. You become more sensitive. How might we apply that to our own society today? Do you think people today in the year 2020 are more sensitive to pain? And I mean that on a physiological, very literal physiological uh, manner. And you can throw in the psychological too, if you like. Are we in 2020 more sensitive to pain than we were in 1920? I think that's a very easy question. What about 1920 to uh, 1820? Or, or, or how about, uh, how about 20 BC, right? Um, you know, it's not as easy with all ages to figure it out, but you would say in general, we've become more sensitive to pain. That's just a, a very, uh, it's almost a trivial observation to say because of, it's a direct function of how comfortable and safe we are. So, um, you know, so that's the implications of that. I'll leave you to think out for yourself. So, um, he goes on to say, are there perhaps neuroses of health of the youth and youthfulness of a people? These are all sort of, he, at this point, he's just variations on a theme, right? Uh, but the metaphors, I think each one brings out neurosis of health of the healthy. That's a wonderful turn of phrase. It's oxymoronic, right? Um, it's technically a contradiction in terms. So it's poetic. That's one of the central, um, meta what would you call it? Like uh, techniques of poetry that you can say is why the poets lie too much and why they are, they can be vague and hard to interpret and they're concealing something. But there's something that you can only, there are some things you can only say through that poetic contradiction, right? Of a neurosis of the healthy. How else could you get that idea across without that contradiction? Um, and then he, Nietzsche asks a very fascinating question that comes up again in the text. Quote, where does the synthesis of God and Billy Goat in the Seder point? What experience of himself, what urge compelled the Greek to conceive the Dionysian enthusiast and primeval man as a Seder? End quote. So that's a very interesting question. Why is why why all these like half man half beast chimeras? As the Greek, you know, so so we were speaking earlier of uh, ironically in a in a uh, animated production that portrays these half man half beast hybrids centaurs, right? But that Fantasia cartoon or Goethe's Helena or um, you know the way Shelley conceived of the god Pan. That is our backward-facing projection onto the Greeks of what a more idyllic, more natural state of man was. But what were the Greeks' backward-facing projections of what a more natural, uh, earlier state of man was? What, what did that look like? And when we look to what the Greeks said, it's the satyr. It, it is those very uh, half-man, half-beast things that were not portrayed as living in this sort of like idyllic, peaceful harmony. But as, you know, centaurs like abduct women and rape them, you know, um, they're, 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 they're not, uh, they're not benign at all. They're, uh, you know, like 
all things in the ancient world and in ancient mythology uh, can, uh, they have the power to, to harm you often. Um, so this raises a huge question, like, what is that all about? And I won't elaborate on that at the moment because we're, I would like to get this in under two hours <laughs> and we'll get into it as we go in with the text. But, um, and then he says, quote, and regarding the origin of the tragic chorus, did those centuries when the Greek body flourished and the Greek soul foamed over with health, perhaps no endemic ecstasies, visions and hallucinations shared by entire communities or assemblies at a cult. Uh, should the Greeks precisely in the abundance of their youth have had the will to the tragic and have been pessimists? Should it have been madness to use one of Plato's phrases that brought the greatest blessings upon Greece? And on the other hand, conversely, could it be that the Greeks became more and more optimistic, superficial, and histrionic precisely in the period of dissolution and weakness, more and more ardent for logic and logicizing the world and thus more cheerful and scientific? Uh, could it, we'll just keep going. Could it be possible that in spite of all modern ideas and the prejudices of a democratic taste, the triumph of optimism, the gradual prevalence of rationality, practical and theoretical utilitarianism, no less than democracy itself, which developed at the same time, might all have been symptoms of a decline of strength, of impending old age, and of physiological weariness. These, and not pessimism, was Epicurus an optimist precisely because he was afflicted? Um, end quote. So, notice he emphasizes the Greek body flourished. And he doesn't neglect, you know, the mind or the soul. He says the, the Greek soul foamed over with health as well. But he suggests, again, neuroses of health. He, he just got done posing the question, could there be neuroses of health? And then he says, maybe there were endemic ecstasies and visions and hallucinations shared by whole communities and assemblies at a cult. You know, uh, Nietzsche's raising the question of, are there collective shared hallucinations that are like manifestly not real, right? That are you could say derangements of the organism's ability to accurately represent his environment to himself, not assuming that we could ever like quote unquote objectively render the environment to ourselves, but that even from the perspective of like the consensus of other groups of human beings, like independently would say would falsify the thing, the, the, actual manifest perceptions of an entire group of people like literally mass hallucinations is that possible is that um nietzsche's daring to ask whether this neurosis of the healthy whether this enchantment of the world that i think it's ken games often speaks of in his interpretation of nietzsche which i think is a wonderful phrase nietzsche seems to suggest that this might have been quite literal it's it's a very strange thing to wonder about um, but I think a lot of people often think of the Nietzsche's in conception of how a culture or a morality enchants the world or a religion enchants the world and being in this sort of like abstract way or in terms of like a mindset or an attitude. And here Nietzsche is almost suggesting like maybe to whatever strong or weak degree you might be willing to take this, what if it actually altered their perception of reality? Um, 
very interesting. And so, and then he raises a series of questions again, sort of a reiteration on the same theme. Then we get to where he's denouncing optimism, rationality. So we have optimism in the theoretic again, basically practical and theoretical utilitarianism, um, and democracy itself at the same time. He's saying all of these could be uh, symptoms of a decline in strength. And notice they all correlate with Socratism, right? That that's sort of the end, that's the end state that all of this ends up driving at. You know, democracy comes from the universalism, the universal binding of reason. You know, optimism comes from the idealism, the utopianism, uh, you know, the rationality, the theoretical angle of it. And then, uh, you know, yeah. So uh, I think that's more or less clear. He concludes that section by saying, what seen in the perspective of life is the significance of morality? So remember, there's this issue with morality as being, quote unquote, anti-life or um, necessarily taking us away from the real and into the ideal. That is... Uh, characteristic of the way Nietzsche thought of unconditional morality, deontological morality, and so on during this period of time in his life. And so we can imagine where you're saying from the perspective of life, what is the significance of morality? Um, it would be as part of this decline, right? Uh, so continuing into section five, he, Nietzsche continues on sort of this train of thought, and he says, quote, already in the preface addressed to Richard Wagner, art and not morality is presented as the truly metaphysical activity of man, end quote. So I referenced this at the beginning. Um, and, oh, Nietzsche goes on to say, quote, in the book itself, the suggestive sentence is repeated several times. The existence of the world is justified only by an aesthetic phenomenon. That's one of the most famous utterances in all of birth of tragedy and actually in the the meat of the text in the original text as kaufman points out it's just like an a, a parenthetical remark right it's in parentheses it's like a, a side thought right um but he says so in the preface as we'll get to at the end that he writes to rickard wagner he he says more or less the same thing there art is the truly metaphysical activity of man and not morality. And the significance of this is that it's sort of the difference between the splitting of the world into the true world and the merely apparent world, the world of mere appearances. We've been talking about that for quite a long time on the podcast. Um, I'm not going to elaborate on that too much because I feel like if you're listening to this, you need to have a basic understanding of that idea. And it's like so sewn throughout the show that you should have a basic understanding of it by now. But roughly speaking, right, Heraclitus Phoenicia is, we'll, we'll use Heraclitus because um, it's very easy to to speak within sort of the, the terminology, the lexicon that Heraclitus uh, leaves us to understand Nietzsche's thought on, on this. And Nietzsche's interpretation of Heraclitus being itself the true world, quote unquote, is not the world beyond our senses that we do not perceive, 
that our senses only give us a mere hint of and a symbol of, but the real world is objective and it's out there beyond us, right? No, to Heraclitus, reality manifests in the appearance and that it's the very cloth and uh, essence of being, right, is becoming, is appearance. Um, we could say this is carried forward into modernity before Nietzsche by Hegel, for example, who, um, you know, uh, there's the whole concept of Erscheinung. I talked about that a little bit with Muller. You can listen to our interview on that if you want to revisit that concept. But it's the, then this is the side also then that Nietzsche comes down on of the elevation of appearance, right? Um, that the world of appearances, the world of the senses that we live in, that is what Nietzsche um, says is of the, what would you say, is primary, is what we should, that's the world that we should live in primarily and that we should regard as real. In, like in, and you might say, well, what does that mean? It's like, well, <laughs> in the sense that it's the world of everything that you care about and desire, and is that not good enough for you, <laughs> right? So like, do you need, to, you need to be like assured of its objective reality, independent of the human mind for whatever that might mean. You know, it's like independent, what is reality independent of the mind? Well, you by definition can't conceive of that. So, um, you know, good luck getting any use out of that concept. And that's sort of where, <laughs> that's where the, the Kantian phenomena noumena thing whole kind of ends, right? Where in any case, so with all that in mind, Nietzsche correlates here in this passage, aesthetics with the world of appearance and morality is with that true world that it's correlated with the true world. And there's a sense to this. The moralizing tendency is that tendency to say, well, this is the way things ought to be. This is my ideal of what things should look like. This is the, um, you know, this is the, like the platonic form, right? You have these series of moral dictates or ideals that sort of stand as a law and a judge above everything else. And if everything is not conforming to those, the, moral form or the moral idea that it should conform to that's because this world of appearances is merely a pale imitation of that world and of course therefore morality always ends up judging and condemning the world condemning what is condemning what's real whereas aesthetics and art is in the domain of appearances right art is about uh you know it it it, it is of the senses right? Whether you're talking about visual arts or auditory arts, uh, you could even say, if you want to hit other senses, culinary arts or something like that, right? So anyway, we'll go on with this passage. I think that will provide you with a very interesting um, way of looking at what Nietzsche is saying. So he says, um, quote, indeed, the whole book knows only an artistic meaning and crypto meaning behind all events. A god, if you please, but certainly only an entirely reckless and amoral artist god who wants to experience whether he is building or destroying, in the good and the bad, in his own joy and glory. One who, creating worlds, frees himself from the distress of fullness 
and over fullness, and from the affliction and the contradiction compressed in his soul. Um, end quote. So <laughs> there's a passage in Zarathustra where he says he once conceived of exi- all existence as the creation and manifestation of a suffering God. Now, Christians some say sometimes say that their God is long-suffering, right? But I didn't really get the impression that that's what Zarathustra meant. I think he's talking about this period where Nietzsche says he has an artist's metaphysics, where he conceives of God as an artist God. And what comes to mind in that description, building and destroying, reckless and amoral artist God, um, is Heraclitus, the the fragment about you know the children playing on the beach, the boy god Aeon of the Zodiac who knocks down worlds and then creates new ones with a total innocence in his play, right? So <laughs> it's completely a moral view of the inner content of reality. And there are multiple passages in Birth of Tragedy where he speaks of the <laughs> reality itself as a sort of manifestation of a primordial pain and contradiction right? Which implies that this pain and contradiction is not contrary to like the Freudian or like, uh, you know, what they, they would say that we have this sense of psychological pain and contradiction in our lives because of the ersatz duties and morals imposed upon us by society at large, right? No, Nietzsche would say, no, this is fundamental. All life is painful and contradictory. And <laughs> In his later career, Nietzsche is willing to make claims like that without appealing to some sort of underlying metaphysics because he has gotten over the need to have a true world and to use philosophy to try and get at these ontological truths. He has dismissed that project as being, um, you know, sort of un- unworthy of the philosopher in some sense, if we want to put it put it that way. But here, he's sort of admitting that during this time in his life, Nietzsche might have had some sort of weird idiosyncratic, if not a religious belief, but sort of like spirituality of conceiving of the world as being, I mean, we, we might look at that in like Brahmanic or Buddhistic terms. It makes perfect sense, right? That's That sort of is the underlying religious claim uh, in Hinduism that, uh, you know, wh- actually... Let's look at the way Schopenhauer describes it, because that's how Nietzsche would have probably thought of it. Schopenhauer says that, um, you know, the the world is, of course, you know, it's all of it is all, all that we are and everything around us is all the divine. It's all the Godhead merely placed into a this mortal form, this temporary form. But our actual substance, our essence is the Godhead, the Brahman. And what that means is that the Brahman created reality as a a sort of mistake, as his sort of original sin of the Godhead. And as a result, he has to live within um, within his creation as a sort of penance, right? And uh, Schopenhauer says this is very good as an explanation for what life is, because Schopenhauer believes the will uh, is the fundamental reality, and the will, of course, its fundamental character is what? Willing. What does willing mean? Desiring, 
chasing, trying to attain, trying to pursue, and not satiety, not contentment. So always pursuing, never content. So that is a state of primordial pain because that to Schopenhauer is pain. When your desires are thwarted, that's what we call pain. Um, and happiness is simply a negative principle. It's the absence of that pain. But that can never be permanent. It can only be temporary. So primordial pain and contradiction. We can see how a young Schopenhauerian Nietzsche would see that there was a sort of philosophical or metaphysical basis to conceiving of life that way. And that perhaps then, on a spiritual level, he reads Heraclitus, he has this metaphor of this innocent boy god playing, creating worlds, knocking them down. That's what our reality is. It is not a, a true world, this thing that he's describing. It's not as if this boy god of the zodiac Aeon is sitting up in heaven watching over us. Rather, we are all he because he is revealed in every moment and the appearances of all things within this world of appearances and in the senses, because that is what being is. That is how being is manifested, is that it appears, it shines forth. And so I think this is what Nietzsche means with his artist's metaphysics. And But the difference between himself and Schopenhauer is that he believes that if he introduces a moral element, if he believes, he believes that if he then colors that view of life with morality as Schopenhauer does basically saying, and that's why, because, because pain is the ultimate evil. Suffering is the ultimate evil, just as the Buddhists say. Um, and the, the goal then is to get free from suffering. That's why the world is then of no value, right? Nietzsche is determined not to do that because however honest Schopenhauer might've been, when you introduce that moral element, it is correlated with that true world thinking of condemning the world as it is. And again, I mean, there's no logical argument here, by the way. This is purely an instinct, a predilection, a temperament issue, right? It's what Nietzsche's instinct tells him. And he would simply say, well, people with strong instincts will want to affirm the world for what it is. And Schopenhauer was a weak, despairing romantic. That's what he says of Schopenhauer in his later work. So, uh, Nietzsche continues, quote, the world at every moment, the attained salvation of God as the eternally changing, eternally new vision of the most deeply afflicted, discordant and contradictory being who can find salvation only in appearance. You can call this whole artist's metaphysics, arbitrary, idle, fantastic. But what matters is that it betrays a spirit who will one day fight at any risk whatever the moral interpretation and significance of existence. Here, for the first time, a pessimism beyond good and evil is suggested. Here, that perversity of mind gains speech and formulation against which Schopenhauer never wearied of hurling in advance his most irate curses and thunderbolts. A philosophy that dares to move to demote morality into the realm of appearance. Okay, um... End quote. And he goes on to say, you know, and not just simply, I'm not just putting morality as appearance is a phenomena among the phenomena, other phenomena. I'm saying it's a deception. It's an illusion. It's an error, right? It's not just a appearance, uh, a mere appearance in the way philosophers talk about it. I'm saying morality is a real error. It's wrong. So throughout all that section I just read, given what we just talked about, should all 
be very clear, he's coming out against Schopenhauer and saying, even though his artist's metaphysics was arbitrary, idle, and fantastic, what matters is the seed of the idea. Or really, actually what he says is that it, what it reveals about Nietzsche as a spirit, that it was his first step in his long fight against the moral interpretations of existence. His demand, even at this early time, even before he really understood in a conscious manner all of these things that is would bloom in his philosophy, he had the instinct back then. That's what Nietzsche's saying is like, okay, as imperfect and flawed as this book was, I had the instinct to demand an aesthetic view of the world, which means a redemption of appearances, the elevation of appearances, the elevation of the world of the senses, saying that only by the beauty of this world of the senses, the real world that we actually live in, the world of our desires, our goals, where all of our pains are, where all of our joys are, that is what I'm going to demand and I'm going to fight against the moral interpretations that ultimately say, eh, well, that world that you live in is flawed. And it has all these things that are defective with it that are accusations against it. And so then what where we get to next, um, very important, he says, quote, perhaps the depth of this anti-moral propensity is best inferred from the careful and hostile silence with which Christianity is treated throughout the whole book. Christianity as the most prodigal elaboration of the moral theme to which humanity has ever been subjected. In truth, nothing could be more opposed to the purely aesthetic interpretation and justification of the world, which are taught in this book, Birth of Tragedy, than the Christian teaching, which is and wants to be only moral and which relegates art, every art, to the realm of lies with its absolute standards, beginning with the truthfulness of God. It negates, judges, and damns art. Behind this mode of thought and valuation, which must be hostile to art if it is at all genuine, I never failed to sense a hostility to life, a furious, vengeful antipathy to life itself. For all of life is based on semblance, art, deception, points of view, and the necessity of perspectives and error. Christianity was, from the beginning, essentially and fundamentally, life's nausea and disgust with life. Merely concealed behind, masked by, dressed up as faith in another or better life, hatred of the world, condemnation of the passions, fear of beauty and sensuality, a beyond invented the better to slander this life. At bottom, a craving for the nothing, for the end, for respite, for the Sabbath of Sabbaths. All this always struck me no less than the unconditional will of Christianity to recognize only moral values as the most dangerous and uncanny form of all possible forms of a will to decline. At the very least, a sign of abysmal sickness, weariness, discouragement, exhaustion, and the impoverishment of life. Um, for confronted with morality, life must continually and inevitably be in the wrong because life is something essentially amoral. Life must then be felt to be unworthy of desire and altogether worthless. Morality itself, how now, might not morality be a will to negate life? A secret instinct of annihilation, 
a principle of decay, diminution, and slander. The beginning of the end, and hence the danger of dangers. End quote. I wanted to stop it there. At certain points, I ended up reading a huge chunk, but it's because as I went on, it's, it's given everything we've talked about leading up to this, I feel the passage is almost more explanatory of the things I've said than I have been explanatory of Nietzsche. Um, you know, sometimes I feel like I ramble trying to extrapolate what the man meant. And then you get to a line later and you're like, oh, he, well, he said what <laughs> he meant in a much more direct way than I could. And of course he did because he's Nietzsche. So, but, so here he, Nietzsche brings out the silent hostility to Christianity that's in Birth of Tragedy. And so, as Nietzsche says, he's getting in his dig on the Christians here and saying, all right, so I've been condemning morality because it's anti-life. It's associated with true worldism against the aesthetic redemption of appearances that I wished for. And that all of that undercurrent is very clear throughout that whole section that I just read. And Nietzsche says, Christianity is the most prodigal elaboration of the moral theme to which humanity has ever been subjected. So, so far on earth, the moralizing tendency is most fully and completely realized in Christianity to the point where it becomes totalizing and edges out all the other value structures such as aesthetics. And Nietzsche points out how it's particularly hostile to aesthetics for the reasons we've been talking about that, for one, he ties art to life and he ties morality to anti-life. So there's a hostility to life in the totally moralizing religion because ultimately life is based on, um, what does he say? Semblance, art, deception, points of view and the necessity of perspectives and error. And so Nietzsche discusses this a great deal in Beyond Good and Evil, but all of our um, standpoints in understanding the world, all of our epistemologies are perspectival. What this means is there is no immaculate perception, as we might say. There's no absolute perceiver. If there is, we don't have access to it. All we have access to is our own perception, which is always grounded in a certain time and place. And Nietzsche is hyper attuned to this, and he is throughout his entire career. He says the congenital defect of all philosophers is that they take the contingent realities of their time and place to be universal truths, and or they extrapolate things that they feel, see, experience, um, perceive in their own time. They extrapolate these into abstract and binding principles on all life or all mankind. Um, but he says, uh, you know, so that is fundamentally, the problem with that is that it fundamentally goes against the character of life, which is irreducibly perspectival and just to cut to the chase, as I've tried to do throughout to really give you the, 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 what would you say? The condensed nugget of the idea, the aphorism, the best one I still think is from genealogy of morals, even though I've brought this one up a million times, the good of the hawk or the bird of prey is antithetical, incompatible, mutually exclusive 
with the good of the little lamb that it preys upon. The predator, what is good for the predator, what the predator desires, what the predator's values are, we might say, what its instincts are driving at. Um, but if you were creating like a community of some species of animals, um, uh, on the list of things, if you're going to create a thing to, to create a, a, a Plato's Republic for lions, what would you have in there? Well, you'd have gazelles. Why gazelles? Why are they part of the, well, they're not part of the Republic of Lions. They're the food, right? But if you were to create a Republic of the gazelle, Plato's Republic of the Gazelle, a big thing would be there's no lions there <laughs> in our ideal society, right? And so these are mutually exclusive, oppositional, incompatible values that different um, organisms, but we would say points of perspective, points of moral perspective, points of... See, it's not even moral, right? Because animals don't have a morality. When I call it the good of something... I'm not speaking of it in like a Kantian or deontological or duty-based way, but Nietzsche doesn't believe that's where values come from. Those values are pre-rational. Our preferences are prior even to our perception of the world for Nietzsche. Nietzsche says, so if we had uh, all of our senses are shaped by preferences, they're shaped by what made us more powerful, what we sought after, what was valuable to us, and then what whatever sought after that which it found valuable that allowed it to continue to live and expand and reproduce and grow stronger is what survives and comes down to us now as the various forms of animals and life on the planet. And whatever didn't is dead, right? So the proof is in the pudding. Uh, you, there's, you know, the fact that we are alive today is proof that this process is going on. But what Nietzsche says is that, uh, all of our sensations, which are our sense organs, are the way that we interface with the world at large. It's our only and our sole experience of the world. That is shaped by preference. That preference comes first. What does he mean by that? Well, he says, well, suppose it was to our advantage evolutionarily to detect the electrical field. And, and there are animals that do this, by the way. I think birds, to some extent, can do it when they their migratory patterns. It's like... If so, we would perceive that. We'd have an organ for perceiving that. But we don't, which means um, we didn't have any sort of preference for whether we could detect the electrical field or not, or at least not a strong enough one to affect having an organ for that. He says, so the fact that you have eyes, the fact that you have ears, the fact that you each of these senses, which allows you to construct this whole reality, build this whole reality out of it, that was shaped by preferences by irrational values that you drove towards as an organism or as a life form that you know um so your sense your senses in the very world you live in is not founded on some sort of like uh, reason or truth or morality that you come to as by a duty right um and so yeah all right um so to continue so life itself Life itself, he correlates with art here. And what does art have in common with all of this? Well, art is also um, irrational or pre-rational. It flows from uh, the inside out, right? Um, and so it's authentic in that way, even though it falsifies the world as it quote-unquote really is, right? Um, it's nevertheless a... <laughs> art 
this is a very general, I am struggling with some of these like overgeneralized statements, but I think this will become clear as we get into the text yet again. I'm probably saying that too much, but the reason why art is like life is because art makes these pre-rational demands in the world and that the artist then falsifies the world in accordance with his demand. That's what his work of art is. It displays a certain image. Um, so, and what he says, confronted with morality then, because life is inherently deceptive, it's based on perspectival points of view, which can't be universalized. They don't conform with this demand that we have this universal binding morality on all men. He says, quote, life must continually and inevitably be in the wrong. Um, and then the final result of this is Christianity. When we have this totalizing thing, pushes out aesthetics, pushes out all sources of value and devalues this world. It ends up devaluing the entire world. And again, something we've talked about sort of throughout the podcast. I think this should all be pretty clear by here. So we'll move on. Um, just the final paragraph of this section, Nietzsche says, quote, it was against morality that my instinct turned with this questionable book. He said it was a, an instinct that aligned itself with life and that discovered for itself a fundamentally opposite doctrine and valuation of life, purely artistic and anti-Christian. What to call it? As a philologist and a man of words, I baptized it, not without taking some liberty, for who could claim to know the rightful name of the Antichrist? In the name of a Greek god, I called it Dionysian. End quote. So we have Dionysus versus the crucified in this uh, preface here. So in six, uh, section six of the preface, Nietzsche says, um, quote, is it clear what task I first dared to touch with this book? How I regret now that in those days I still lacked the courage or immodesty to permit myself in every way an individual language of my own for such individual views and hazards, and that instead I tried laboriously to express by means of Schopenhauerian and Kantian formulas strange and new valuations which were basically at odds with Kant's and Schopenhauer's spirit and taste. Uh, what, after all, did Schopenhauer think of tragedy? End quote. And then he then quotes Schopenhauer saying that um, the point of tragedy is quote, the discovery that the world, that life can never give real satisfaction and hence is not worthy of our affection. This constitutes the tragic spirit. It leads to resignation, end quote. And Nietzsche says, how differently Dionysus spoke to me, how far removed I was from all this resignationism. And so what Nietzsche is lamenting here, so we already talked about sort of his Schopenhauerian influence and then by implication or I've just sort of implied his, his Kantian influence, right? That we see that he wishes to redeem the world of appearances, um, sort of rejecting that Kantian noumena and, or noumenon and the, obviously the very strong moralizing deontological uh, tendency in Kant. And with Schopenhauer, he, of course, comes to the, that's how Nietzsche comes to his idea of the primordial pain and contradiction at the heart of life, right? And the, the, the willing is the fundamental reality. Um, and yet, again, Schopenhauer colors that honest picture of the world with his morality, of saying, okay, well, if that's what the world is, then we must reject it, seek for the world beyond. That's what Nietzsche classifies as Christian, moralistic, um, all of these things. 
And so uh, Nietzsche says Dionysus spoke to him differently rather than seeing tragedy as this <laughs> uh, means of attaining resignationism. He thinks it was this inducement to life, as we've discussed. Um, and so he says, quote, uh, that he, well, I'm not going to quote, actually. He just says he regrets that he obscured and spoiled Dionysian, his Dionysian premonitions with Schopenhauerian formulations. But he says worse than that. He says he spoiled the Greek problem as it has had arisen before his eyes by introducing the most modern problems. And uh, I'm going to gloss over sort of the rest of six because it's basically um, just him dunking on Germans. But, I mean, he basically says, and we'll see this as we get throughout the text, that, you know, he, he, he was trying fundamentally to address himself to the problem of German culture at the time. And he was thinking very much in Wagnerian terms about German culture at the time. He saw Wagner as this cultural hero who might try and rejuvenate the German psyche with his cultural movement, with his new artistic movement. And, um, you know, he saw that uh, Germany, he says it was uh, becoming a leveling mediocrity. It was giving into democracy. It was giving into modern ideas. And, and this is perhaps the more important point that is a charge leveled directly at Wagner. He says, quote, uh, German music is romanticism through and through in the most un-Greek of all possible art forms. A first-rate poison for the nerves, doubly dangerous among people who love drink and who honor lack of clarity as a virtue. Um, end quote. So, and oh, and he ends this passage by sort of saying, he raised another question mark. What would music have to be like that would no longer be of romantic origin like German music? What would be a Dionys truly Dionysian music? And so he, by saying he spoiled his first book, so for, the first way he spoiled it is by he used Kantian and Schopenhauerian formulations, and we'll see what that, how the formulas of these older philosophers, his influences, infiltrate the text at various points and that Nietzsche says it's kind of not appropriate because my ideas were so individual but I was still thinking in these old categories but more to the point that he was thinking about these modern problems that he thought Wagner had a solution to and as we all know he later denounces Wagner and Schopenhauer as romantics we've already sort of talked about the romantic point of view that Nietzsche um, dismissed but he says this is this is what German music is it's all thoroughly romantic. It all wants to return to an idyllic former time in which everything was good. Um, and it's doubly dangerous for the Germans to have this kind of romantic music because to the Germans, lack of clarity is a virtue. Um, and that it's it sort of has the double, uh, he says, it has quote, the double quality of a narcotic that both intoxicates and spreads like a fog. That's how he sees Wagner's music as being like a narcotic. Now, of course, again, 1886 preface. This is later Nietzsche coming back to make a criticism and sort of summary of what he was doing in this book. But uh, so when we look at what he says to Richard Wagner at the time, not at all how he feels about Wagner. Um, okay, well, the final section here, section seven, Nietzsche sort of... Um, he, he has a devil's advocate 
um, against himself, <laughs> you know, uh, where he, he says, quote, but my dear sir, what in the world is romantic if your book isn't? Can deep hatred against the now, against reality and modern ideas be pushed further than you pushed it in your artist's metaphysics? Believing sooner in nothing, sooner in the devil than in the now. A little further down, he says, uh, you know, he, okay, he says, there's like a sort of seductive uh, humming and a deep bass of wrath uh, and a lust for destruction that we hear humming underneath the contrapuntal vocal art and seduction of the ear. Nietzsche is very much describing his own writing at this time in terms that he would talk about sort of Wagner's like narcotic style of music, of like seducing people into nihilism with this powerful sensuous experience. And that Nietzsche is sort of saying, is this not what I was doing here? He's willing to, to articulate a really damning criticism against himself too. That like, okay, you're raving, ranting and raving against romanticism, but also against modern ideas and against the now. And aren't you saying, what does he say? Quote, sooner let nothing be true than that you should be right, than that your truth should be proven right. Isn't that nihilism? Isn't that romanticism? And um, what Nietzsche does is the, he then basically to um, reject this claim that it, this isn't just the typical romantic creed of the 1830s, masked by the pessimism of the 1850s. Um, there's not really a clear answer, but what, what Nietzsche goes on to say, I mean, I guess I'll skip to the end really quick. He quotes a long passage from Thus Spoke Zarathustra, which uh, doesn't really need any um, uh, commentary, I don't think. It's from Thus Spoke Zarathustra, book four on the higher man. It's uh, Zarathustra's little pian to laughter in the name of laughter. He's, you know, in, enticing or extolling the virtues of laughing and dancing and being lighthearted and lightheaded. And he's saying, he concludes, it's a part in Zarathustra concludes by saying, this crown of the laughter, this rose wreath crown to you, my brothers, I throw this crown. Laughter I have pronounced holy. You higher men learn to laugh. And that's how Nietzsche concludes this whole um, introduction. Um, and uh, as, as, as Kaufman points out, he, he quotes on the higher man, section 17 to 20 in Thus Book Zarathustra, he quotes with, with omissions. But so very clear message Nietzsche's making here to um, be a little lighthearted and, and not take things so seriously. Again, that's sort of the low-hanging fruit of this. Um, because what he prefaces that with Quoting that passage from Zarathustra, he says, quote, you ought to learn the art of this worldly comfort first. Um, and so this worldly is hyphenated. It's an obvious contrast to otherworldly comfort. And then he follows it up with immediately, you ought to learn to laugh, my young friends, if you are hell-bent on remaining pessimists. Perhaps as laughers, you may someday dispatch all metaphysical comforts to the devil, metaphysics in front. Um, and so he, what he's saying here, it's once again calls to mind that, that curious um, relationship between, you know, it, it seems oxymoronic, but to say, 
If you want to remain a pessimist, you have to learn how to laugh. It's a sentence you're, you, you know we wouldn't be used to hearing within our popular understanding of what pessimism is. But given what Nietzsche said pessimism is and where it comes from, that it comes from an over, you know, his pessimism of strength, rather. Um, because, okay, and I guess to, to, to backtrack even further um, in this passage, I didn't intend to go in backwards order in, in, in kind of looking at this last section, but I guess that's just how it's, it's worked out. He says that uh, it's highly probable that it will end that way, that you end that way, namely comforted as it is written in spite of all self-education for seriousness and terror, comforted metaphysically and some as romantics end as Christians. And Nietzsche had direct experience with that in his life. Wagner ended his life as a Christian. Um, and so <laughs> Nietzsche's saying there's a romantic to Christian pipeline, right? And what gets them in the end is the need to be comforted metaphysically. That when their strength declines, when their life declines, and they get old, when they get sick, when they get weak. Um, romanticism degenerates, it turns into Christianity. That this desire, that what romanticism really is, is a desire to return to that Garden of Eden, right? To that primordial simplicity and ease and comfort. That's the Schopenhauerian... Uh, you know, abdication of the will and rejection of being, the desire for nothingness, for a rest, to be released from the samsara, right? And in Christianity, the metaphor we have is the Garden of Eden as the thing that existed before mankind's guilt and this rat race and the stress and the sin and the suffering before that natural, primal, easy simplicity. But the thing is, that doesn't exist on earth in Nietzsche's view, and it can't exist. That's just not what life is. It never was that in Nietzsche's view. And so if you keep trying to get back to that, if your whole program of morality and moral thinking and, um, and of uh, your political program as well, your whole orientation to the world is based on this idea that there was originally this ease and comfort and simplicity and things have gone downhill from there since man left out of nature. You're always going to be looking for that Garden of Eden again. You're never going to find it. And in the end, since you will have failed to create that in the physical world, in the real world, right? Using real as the world of appearances and phenomena as we have been, you will then be ripe to be, to fall into Christianity. And that's as Nietzsche saw happening to Schopenhauer and as he saw happening to Wagner. You will, um, you, those who have not learned the art of this worldly comforts will be seduced by the other worldly comforts. And so that's why he ends with learning to laugh, not only to, all right, let's not take this quite as seriously. Um, this is a very flawed book, as I have said, and I admit its flaws. Nevertheless, there are some very good ideas here and and seeds of ideas that would take hold later. And ultimately, um, so, so how was that Nietzsche's way of answering the charge that his work is romantic? He would say that his, even at this time, influenced as he was by Wagnerian bad manners and all of the, you know, modern 
problems that he was that he thinks spoiled the book. In spite of all of that, as he said before, he was committed to this aesthetic uh, view of the world, this aesthetic metaphysical view, and against the moral view with this silent hostility to Christianity, and this would blossom into him fighting a fight against this otherworldism throughout his life. And so that's why he concludes with saying, uh, we have to, if you really want to be life-affirming and affirm the world, the real world, you have to, um, <laughs> you have to learn to hang on to your pessimism, your brute honesty about that real world by learning to laugh. Um, and again, not a philosophical argument. It's a, it's a statement of temperament or instinct. And so, uh, you know, he quotes, he quotes from, uh, in this preface to <laughs> birth of tragedy, he quotes from his own book, uh, from section 18, uh, which is a very interesting quotation. I mean, it's funny. He's quoting his own book and the preference to it, preface to it, but it's to prove a point. Um, so he says, he poses the question is the birth of tragedy itself. This is in his sort of devil's advocate speak that he invokes at the beginning of the passage is the birth of tragedy itself. Not something equally intoxicating and befogging. Is it not this piece of romantic art like Wagnerianism? Is it a narcotic? Is it a piece of music? Is it not German music? Right? So he's saying this work is so poetic and so overflowing with like sort of lyrical prose. It's basically music. And I'm a German afflicted with these German modern problems and modern ideas. So it, it, isn't it just falling victim to all the things you criticize? And so, but then he says, but listen, and then he quotes, he says, uh, quote, let us imagine a coming generation with such intrepidity of vision, with such a heroic penchant for the tremendous. Let us imagine the bold stride of these dragon slayers, the proud audacity with which they turn their back on all the weaklings' doctrines of optimism in order to live resolutely in wholeness and fullness. Would it not be necessary for the tragic man of such a culture and view of his self-education for seriousness and terror to desire a new art, the art of metaphysical comfort, to desire tragedy as his own proper Helen, and to exclaim, exclaim with Faust, Quote, should not my longing overleap the distance and draw the fairest form into existence? End quote. And Nietzsche responds. He says, would it not be necessary? No, thrice no, O you young romantics. So he's quoting himself, asking. So Nietzsche, young Nietzsche paints this picture of, let's imagine a coming generation that has this intrepidity of vision that is embraces this tragic worldview I'm laying out that the Greeks had, but that we've lost and they live resolutely in wholeness and fullness. They reject the weakling doctrines of optimism, but he says, would it, would it not be necessary for the tragic man of such a culture to desire a new art, to desire tragedy as his own proper Helen and the way, so he's quoting from Faust, uh, from Goethe's Faust from the Helena that I mentioned earlier. And, uh, you know, Hel Helen is the object of Faust's desire. She's the representative of the eternal feminine. So he's saying, would not tragedy be the object of our desire as the tragic man? Uh, the man in such a culture 
with who's been educated into seriousness and terror. And Nietzsche answers himself, later Nietzsche, and says no. And he basically, by implication, calls himself a young romantic. And that's where he basically says, he, this is, it's funny because he's, he's both calling himself out and he's answering the charge, right? Because I think we see in this passage both. We see how the language Nietzsche was using, how those old formulations were quote-unquote spoiling his thought. And on the other side of that coin, and so, and so that's what he criticizes in his self-criticism. He calls himself a young romantic and he's like, no, you don't need metaphysical comforts. You need this worldly comfort, as he said. And that comfort is laughter, dancing, right? Um, all of these things that, uh, you know, the full indulgence and the richness and the beauty of life. Um, but on the other side of that coin, in this passage, I think we see that Nietzsche is on the path to something, right? That's why he's drawing this out and saying, but listen, this is a different tone. It's a different, it's driving at something fundamentally different from the utopian optimism for the return to the garden that the, the romantic ultimately is driving towards. That um, there is something I was aiming for that was like turning its back on this the weakling's doctrines of optimism. Okay. Um, so that's all for the attempt at self-criticism. And so now we'll have a brief look at the preface to uh, Richard Wagner. And so the, the only thing to really keep in mind when you look at this preface is that Nietzsche says at the beginning, uh, the these introductory remarks that the distillation of good and ele elevating hours and that uh he pictures the moment quote when you my highly respected friend will receive this essay perhaps after an evening walk in the winter snow you will behold prometheus unbound on the title page read my name and be convinced at once whatever this essay should contain the author certainly has something serious and urgent to say also that as he hatched these ideas he was communicating with you as if you were present and hence could only write down what was in keeping with that presence, end quote. So, you know, Nietzsche had become personal friends with Rickard and his wife, Cosima Wagner, and he and the Wagners would uh, often meet when Nietzsche was teaching at Basel. Nietzsche met Rickard Wagner shortly before he um, had a letter of recommendation and then got his professorship, um, very shortly before, and they hit it off and became fast friends over a mutual love of Schopenhauer and the fact that Nietzsche already knew Wagner's music and, you know, um, actually part of the way that his name came up and he was even able to meet the Wagners is that uh, Professor Richel's wife told Cosima Wagner that she, you know, she already knew, or I think she told Richard Wagner himself as he played some of his, one of his musical pieces, she said, oh, I know that piece, I've heard Nietzsche play it. And Wagner said, I have to meet this Nietzsche. And so in any case, the Wagners moved to Tribschen and Nietzsche was teaching at Basel, which was a short journey away. And so he often uh, would visit with the Wagners and then they would have very involved philosophical uh, conversations and Nietzsche would go on walks with them. And, um, you know, it was a very involved and uh, 
intimate intellectual relationship, you could say. And Nietzsche became part of Wagner's inner circle. You know, he's a, he's a famous composer at the time. He's on the ascendancy. And the reason why he's living in Tribschen is because they're building his great festival house so that Wagner can hold his big Bayreuth festival. Um, and so Nietzsche's part of this inner circle of this, you know, enigmatic and uh, famous composer that many people are saying is sort of the future of German music. And Nietzsche and Wagner... They have all these philosophical uh, similarities. They also sort of have a similar outlook on the culture of Germany, that it's become, um, you know, very limited, narrow, nationalistic. Um, it's become, you know, uh, that the arts and the humanities are not being taught in a way that are actually um, proving to transform the Germans into a cultured people. Nietzsche thinks the Germany's never really had hasn't been able to create for itself a very um, deep and powerful culture um, that just they're they're sort of just knocking around like uh, big-headed military men but they're taking all of their really high culture from the French and from other people and um, there's sort of the opportunity if the Germans could break out of this sort of simple ruin sorry excuse me rural Lutheranism tongue twister that maybe Germany could create for itself a new culture. And Nietzsche and Wagner sort of have this dream of resurrecting the old spirit of the Greeks to transform the German psyche. And so that's that whole thing, that whole uh, philosophical out outlook should be understood, though, as secondary to the sort of personal friendship that they formed. And the fact, so he's talking about how um, he can imagine Wagner on an evening walk in the winter snow and then picking up his book and everything. That's because Nietzsche knew him personally. And when he's saying, I'm writing this to you, I have had friends like this that I've had an intellectual relationship with, especially when someone you often find them on the opposite side of your philosophical positions. And I, I think this is what Nietzsche is talking about, by the way, in his, uh, where he sometimes mentions like the benefit of having an, an enemy, like an intellectual enemy, so to speak. Um, but I've been in that sort of position where you, you know, someone that you really like and can talk to where you, um, you know, in my case, I've had some, some friends where they often take the opposite positions. And then you find yourself writing your philosophy almost as if you're addressing it to them. Like you, uh, want to make a more elaborated, um, evidentiary perhaps like, or a more empirical argument or more, uh, um, you know, as I said, elaborated argument for your point as if this person is listening, um, as if you're addressing it to that audience. And so for Nietzsche, I mean, um, you know, we can have some idea of what they talked about, but um, perhaps in those conversations, um, in those long walks together, Nietzsche's, um, you know, it, it, it sort of uh, leads along his thought in what he's thinking about when he's writing Birth of Tragedy. I mean, it almost certainly does to the point where he says, um, you know, I hope uh, I hope you understand Wagner that this book is basically just written for you. Um, so, again, didn't help the case with the, uh, the other scholars, I don't think, and the other academics as to the academic merit of the book. But, um, in any case, uh, what does he say? Else, he says a a seriously German problem is faced here and placed right in the center of German hopes as a vortex and turning point. So, you know, very obvious meaning there that uh, this is a German, the birth of tragedy is an answer to a German problem. And that's sort of an elaboration of what he said in the, the 1886 preface, or he elaborates on that, that 
he finds uh, almost nothing more un-Greek than the German culture. Um, and so how could we, this, this, this force of Greek tragedy, I've found something that might be uh, a worthy answer to the German problem as we've laid it out. Um, and so, what else here? Um, perhaps such readers will find it offensive that an aesthetic problem should be taken so seriously. And so here, remember, this is, uh, if you were to pick up this book in 1872, right, before the 1886, you know, preface is added, you're just a, a, an interested uh, German philology student and you decide to pick up a brand new copy of, in 1872, of Friedrich Nietzsche, The Birth of Tragedy Out of the Spirit of Music. This is the first thing that you would read as you open the pages as his preface, learning that he's speaking to Wagner. But then he, he addresses himself to uh, this prejudice that he elaborates on more fully in the um, appended later preface that the aesthetics has never been, you know, it, Nietzsche would say that under the Christian morality, um, aesthetics is always relegated to the second place because morality has been elevated to the principal metaphysical activity of man. And thus everything must be, um, placed beneath morality. And that's sort of part of Nietzsche's crusade against Christianity. Um, but we see an echo of it here and, and we, we needn't expect again, you know, that this would occur only within the minds of people who follow Christianity in terms of the historic and institutional religion of today, but um, that there is, I experienced this in my own studies in philosophy when I did go to college, that uh, aesthetics is never treated, I mean, it's it's barely even discussed, especially in, in like early, like introductory philosophy, um, you know, the first, like when you're getting your bachelor's degree, yeah, I think you would need to take some sort of elective, you really want to spend any serious amount of time talking about it, aesthetics, because it's way more focused on epistemology, ethics, religion, politics, right? These are the important domains um, of life. And I think Nietzsche would say that our prejudice as academics, it's a reflection of the fact that our secular culture is inherited from Christianity. It still more or less views morality as the most important thing. And almost all those other um, domains of philosophy are always sort of getting sucked into morality, right? Um or being justified in so far as the morality that they serve or the moral outcome that a philosophical belief makes possible or the practical applications, um, you know. So in any case, so Nietzsche addresses that, that um, this is a, a work that places aesthetics as of central importance. It's a work with an artist's metaphysics, though he doesn't use that term yet. So, um, but he says... Uh, Quote, assuming they're unable to consider art more than a pleasant sideline, a readily dispensable tinkling of bells that accompanies the seriousness of life, just as if nobody knew what was involved in such a contrast with the seriousness of life. Let such serious readers learn something from the fact that I am convinced that art represents the highest task and the truly metaphysical activity of this life, and the sense of that man to whom, as my sublime predecessor on this path, I wish to dedicate this essay." end quote. And he signs that Basel end of the year, uh, 1871. So here Nietzsche says, I'm hand in hand with Wagner, the man to it, to whom I dedicate this work in some sense, he's worthy of receiving it because Nietzsche sees Wagner as another aesthete like him, right? Rather than a moralist. This is a man to whom art is the supreme metaphysical activity. 
Now, uh, given what Nietzsche would later say about Wagner, and we won't go into that too much here, um, because I think it's almost uh, inappropriate to bring in the later lives of Nietzsche and Wagner and their later disputes and their later philosophy into interpreting this book. I think we should mostly interpret it in light of what Nietzsche was thinking and doing at the time. But it is just a little funny because later he would sort of accuse Wagner of, um, you know, being a magician, um, playing on the senses with sort of um, nothing transformative to the broader cultural psyche or anything like that beneath his art. He was just sort of playing on the heartstrings and whipping people up into a sentimental frenzy and that all of his characters in those operas are like represent like a hospital ward because they're all sort of, you know, archetypes of like derangements and pathologies and things. Um, and so it's interesting. It's almost like the, the purely artistic, you know, Nietzsche's, Nietzsche, I'm sure, would ha- make a distinction here, but he sees it giving way in Wagner to, like, a sort of sentimentality. And it's that, again, if we want to really analyze this, the sentimentality is itself a sign and a symptom, right? That it would be a sign and a symptom that Wagner was a, um, a again, a weak and despairing soul. As Nietzsche would later say of him, he collapsed helpless and broken before the Christian cross in the end. But... um at this time, Nietzsche sees Wagner and himself, at, or Wagner is sort of the symbol, as the man, the, the thunderhead, the vanguard leading the charge of a new aesthetic view of life that would potentially replace morality with art, um, where aesthetics form up our highest values and the basis of our new value structure. Um, I don't think this ultimately works, and I think Nietzsche didn't think it ultimately works. But the inclinations here that he shows the instincts here. I I mean, I would more or less agree with Nietzsche, right? That uh, there's something very beautiful in his instinct to embark upon this project that says something about him and that like tills the soil for all of his ideas later, even if um, ultimately his project would become very different. Okay. That's all for this week, everyone. Um, Got past the prefaces and uh, next week we'll get into the text. If you enjoyed the Nietzsche podcast or found it helpful, you can visit us and support the show at patreon.com slash untimelyreflections. The link is in the description. Or just share the show with any of your friends that you think might enjoy it or on social media. Thank you for your support.